Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we have a guest, Greg Lambrecht, who is the chairman and creator of the Coravin system. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And welcome to Coravin's headquarters here in Massachusetts. I've been a longtime product user, and I know Peter has been as well. So I was wondering if you'd give us a little background about your personal background, but also how you created and came about building and making the Corvin. <laughs> I'll do 20 years in less than a minute. I fell in love with wine when I was 16. I was illegally brought up to Napa Valley by my friends, and I was the front man with a beard and walked into Peju Winery. I think I could say them now. I've apologized to him many times. <laughs> statute limitations and such. And he served me my first glass of wine and it changed my life. My parents didn't drink wine and that was the first one that ever passed my lips. And I was like, how did you make this? And why doesn't it taste like a grape? And what's going on with this? And he was absolutely passionate about it. And his passion fed my interest. So went to college and continued drinking California wine. I was from California. Then I met a wonderful teacher who was from Europe and she's like, you've got to start drinking European wines. So I expanded into European wines and I met who would become my wife. She drank exclusively European wines. And so from Italy and then I traveled for work. I work in medical devices. I invent new medical therapies. And so I was doing clinical trials all over the world and developing new medical devices with physicians all over the world and started to taste wines in different countries in France, Italy, Spain, Slovenia, Croatia, and Austria where my family is from. And so I fell in love with the breadth and the variety of wines. And, you know, I was 29 and I had a rack of maybe 40, 45 different wines. No two bottles were the same. Some of them were the same grape, but they were from different countries. And some of them were the same wine, but from two different vintages. We started to break into this tradition where we would drink a bottle of wine on a Friday or a Saturday because I traveled all the time. And you would open a bottle and you would committed to this bottle and you didn't know whether or not you liked that bottle before you opened it. And you open it and you start tasting it. And you're like, Maybe it is or maybe it isn't the right wine for one or both of you. And you were sort of stuck drinking it one way or the other, whether it was right or not. And you were going to drink that bottle until it was gone. Only then would you open another bottle. I began to get frustrated. And then I remember thinking, you know, the surgeon would give me a bottle. and He said, don't drink this for another five years. It's not going to be good for another five years. Or it's too good to drink right now. Drink it at some point in the future. And wine stores would tell me the same thing. I fell in love with the Rhone due to my wife's grandfather. So Northern Rhone, red wines. And I remember buying a really nice bottle. He was a shop. Hermitage, and the guy was like, don't drink this for 10 years. I'm like, why? And he's like, well, it's going to change. I don't get to watch it change. So there were all these little frustrations building up. And then my wife got pregnant, stopped drinking. Then I wasn't drinking. We had wines that we would open during the week, which were essentially wines, we'll put it a different way, I was willing to throw away. <laughs> I'll drink it because I'm willing to throw it away, which is another category. And so the first medical device I developed was a chemotherapy delivery implant. One of the skins used for kids with chemia and, and other people that needed long-term therapy. You would stick a needle through the skin, into this implant, under the skin, over and over again over the course of somebody's therapy. So I got really good at making needles that could go in and out of things without doing damage to them. I remember holding a bottle of wine in my hand and holding one of the needles going, there's got to be a way. I remember thinking what I wanted was a way to drink any wine from any bottle I owned in any quantity I wanted, whenever I wanted, and not have to worry about when I was going to drink from that bottle again. And I thought, if I could do that, I could potentially change the way that wine is served and sold, right? I mean, that guy who sold me the Chauvin Mitage could have given me a taste, said, see, this is too young, but it's going to be great later. And I could have tasted it over the course of years, or I could have seen if it was the right wine for the night, or if my spouse wanted one wine and I wanted another. 
We could have different glasses. I realized that our consumption behavior was almost entirely determined by the volume of sale. It sells in a 750 or it sells in a Magnum. It's like if you wanted to hear a song on an album, you'd have to listen to the whole album, right? And you just wanted to hear the one song and then maybe hear another song. Now with Corvin, when I made the first prototype, well, the first prototype in 1999 was not terribly successful. (laughs) And it was a fun catastrophe, luckily. But the second prototype in 99 worked. And that night I had five different wines. And my behavior changed completely from then on out. It took me 11 years of testing to prove that it worked to me where I could blind taste a wine five years later that I'd Corbin multiple times over those five years in a bottle of wine that I'd just opened from the same case. And I did that with wines from all over the world. And that was to prove to myself that literally I could drink that wine at any time, you know, in any quantity, whenever I wanted, without having to think about when I was going to drink from it again. That barrier for me was five years. If it was the same five years and I couldn't differentiate it from a freshly opened bottle, then that's essentially good enough for me. That led to the founding of the company in 2011 and launched in 2013. And it's been the most fun, incredible experience as a wine lover to come into this industry as the inventor of Coravin in this sort of tangential role where I'm not anybody's enemy, not anybody's competitor. You know, I'm just trying to expand the way that wine is served and sold. And I keep my day job too. I just came over from my medical device company. Was it an epiphany that you had at that moment that you could just fundamentally change it? Or is that kind of hindsight looking back at it that you realize, like as soon as you had that needle and that bottle next to each other, were you like, I know that this is a thing? That's a great question. I've never been asked. You know, it's very easy to tell in retrospect, right? At the time, I just wanted a glass of wine. And honestly, it took until 2004 before I realized that this is something other people wanted. It didn't leave my house until 2004 when a friend of mine got married. And I thought, well, he loves wine. I make him one. And, you know, I've just been iterating at home. And I have to say that when you use something that you've designed, it's very different than making something for somebody else. Like they're going to get no instructions. They're not sitting here with me. It's a wedding gift they're going to open on their wedding night of the day after. I gave them three bottles of wine just in case. They didn't figure out what's going on. And back then the instructions were pictures on a CD, step by step. And it was his reaction to it where he was like, holy crap, this changes everything. Where I was like, really? I know it's something that I want. I travel a bunch. and I love lots of different varieties of wine. And I'm kind of this weird technical guy. But it was when he said to me, this is changing our lives. My wife and I are drinking different wines every day, right? We have a perfect glass of wine each every day. And we didn't used to do that. That was the first indication that it was going to change something. I remember one of my design specs for the prototype was when I walked into my local wine store, Marty's Newton here in Massachusetts, and I told one of the wine bars, a good friend, I said, so I've invented this thing and my design spec is it needs to be so easy to use that I can steal a glass of wine from you, that I can steal a glass from one of the bottles here and you won't know that I've done it because it'll be so fast and so easy. And I told him, I'll buy the bottle, I promise. And so I came up to him one day and I had a full glass of Chardonnay in my hand and I had the prototype. And he had me show it to him. And I asked him what he thought. We were at a table in the back room of this nice wine store. He goes, honestly, what I'm thinking is I'd like to leap over the table and knock you unconscious and steal that. (laughs) And so that began, oh, I can change the way the wine stores work. And then a friend of mine worked in restaurants. And he's like, any wine by the glass. I filed a patent in 2004. So I must have thought it meant it was something. And then to see the response of different parts of the industry, the wineries, the short answer, I could never have imagined what Coravin would become 
certainly when I invented it, and even while I was developing and testing it, that it's used by people I didn't know were part of the wine supply chain, like distributors selling to restaurants and selling to wine stores, using it to sample their guests on wine. I didn't know about it. I just hadn't thought about it. Now to be used by great wineries in Burgundy, Girard uses us and Bordeaux, Chateau Margaux uses us and Obaye uses us. To see the restaurants, how they use us and the creativity, I could never have guessed that. Really, it's great to be me. (laughs) So in terms of the technical aspects, like so, you mentioned the surgical grade needle already. Talk to me about the gas and figuring out which gas you're going to use. Like how long it took you to like kind of refine that and figure out that the cork wool has the elasticity to like heal itself. How did you get to that final product? What's the science behind it? Like how does it work for the person who may not know about your product? So all the basic components of Coravin existed to an extent before I assembled them to create the first functional product. But there was a lot of refinement that had to happen to perfect it and then make it a consumer product. So early on, 2003, I made a prototype where I could change the big variables. And the big variables were the design of the needle, the gas I was going to use to displace the wine so that no air got in while I was pouring, and the pressure I was going to use to drive the wine out of the bottle and how I was going to control that pressure. So what I did was I set up a series of prospective randomized controlled trials, right? So I come from medicine and that's what we do. So my trial was I'd buy a half case of wine and I'd cork in a glass out of one bottle and I'd write all the key statistics, the pressure, the gas, the needle on that label. And then I would come back to it a month later and blind taste it against another bottle from the half case. And then I'd come back at six months, blind taste a new bottle and the first two. And then at one year, another bottle and taste four. And then at two years, and then at five years. And so right at the beginning of that, I started with three different needle sizes, two of which we sell today. We now have a third that I added later. And I started with four different gases, helium, which was funny, (laughs) carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and argon. And I chose carbon dioxide because it was widely available. I chose helium because it was a noble gas, along with argon, a noble gas. Neither of them has any known chemical reactions. So they have no smell, no taste, no color, no nothing. Carbon dioxide, just because it's used in the beverage industry, as well as widely available nitrogen, because it only has three known chemical reactions, and very few of them happen at room temperature. So very quickly, I realized helium didn't work, and my kids breathed it all. (laughs) So it didn't matter whether or not it worked. And it's very scarce, actually. We're running out of helium, sadly. It didn't work because it's so light. You pour the bottle, and when you tip up, it would go, and all the helium would leave and actually suck air in as it left the bottle. That didn't work. Carbon dioxide smells bad. It's got that acrid, sharp smell, and it dissolved into the fluid. So I knew I was going to use carbon dioxide. And the two gases that lasted a long time in blind tasting were nitrogen and argon. Both are good. You can actually get more argon into a cylinder than you can get nitrogen. Both are very common in the air we breathe. Nitrogen is 70 plus percent of the air we breathe. Argon is 1% of the air we breathe. So they're widely available. The downside of nitrogen is that like carbon dioxide dissolves in a fluid, not to get too geeky, but just like carbon dioxide. And in fact, Guinness beer is nitrogenated. Those tiny bubbles are nitrogen. And so I found that it disturbed the palate of the wine immediately after pouring. And then you would have to wait a while for it to denitrogenate and become normal again. And so because I could get more of it in, because it was noble and had no smell and taste, was heavier than air. That was another big choice. I gave one to my brother-in-law. He had the habit of leaving the core of a needle through the cork for hours while he was deciding whether or not he wanted another glass. 
With nitrogen, oxygen would just come in and out. With argon, it wouldn't. So argon was more durable in terms of customer use. And then finally, it was the pressure. That was challenging because you had to try with all sorts of different vintages of cork. Like an old cork doesn't hold as well as a young cork. So I had to buy wines from the 60s and you know 50s. There's one guy in New York who just put it up on a classified ad. I've got a bunch of junk wine sitting in a closet. Does anybody want this? And I was like, yes, $10 a bottle. You got it. I still have some of those. Chateau Montreux. It's actually fantastic from the early 60s. I don't know how it survived. But that helped me figure out the pressure. The biggest challenge between founding of the company where I had all the specs, needles, gas pressures, gases, and launch was making it producible at a cost we could sell. The most expensive technological innovation that we put into this system is hiding inside of it. And that's the thing that controls pressure. So our gas canisters are at like 2,600 pounds per square inch. And the output pressure of Coravin is 24. And no matter what that capsule is, as it bleeds down, it's going to go from 2,800 to 1,400 to 1,000. We need to make sure it's constant output pressure, 24 PSI plus or minus one. So we invented a regulator, the team here did. Those regulators normally cost the price of the core. We now make the single most accurate, least expensive high pressure regulator on the planet. So, you know, the oil industry and high pressure gas, we actually have a better regulator in our device. That almost sunk the company trying to make that work. Wow. Does that impact how you price the Corvin? You said it was like the most expensive thing and it's like the whole price of a Corvin itself. The business model to me seems like it could be a little bit like the printer model, right? Where the hardware is, you almost give it away. It's relatively low margin and then most of the money is made on the ink. I think for Corvin to be a healthy business and for me, you know, one of the signs of a healthy business is one that can fund further innovation. We're still not done. We've got a lot of stuff that we want to do. So we need the money to be able to do that. I think that for a good business, it would be better not to lose money on either. And there's some complexities to the business of distributing compressed gas. Shipment actually can be as expensive as the production of the gas. So we're a young company. We're still evolving. Is the regulator expensive? Oh, yeah. Is the needle expensive? Yes. Yes, it is. It's actually a surgical needle made by the same company that made my chemotherapy needle. And because of the precision and the accuracy that we want, I always want people's results to be as close to perfect as possible. We're not willing to bend on quality. So as the volumes of Corvin gas have gone up and as the volumes of the system itself have gone up, we have the ability to gain economies of scale that give us the chance to make the money that we need to be able to fund additional innovation. And it takes an incredible team of people. Like our gas manufacturer is in Austria. They're the best gas manufacturer in the world. Our device system manufacturer is based out of Hong Kong. We manufacture in Shenzhen. We ship all over the world. We're subject to the Trump tariffs. So, you know, from a profitability standpoint, we write big checks to the U.S. government for those tariffs. It's a complicated global international world. We ship product to Australia. While Corvin is a lot of fun because it's in the wine industry and it's part of the quality of life, it deals with all of the complexities of a modern global business and governments and regulations and tariffs and pandemics, right? So just in terms of the economics of one capsule, how many uses are you supposed to get out of a capsule? And what's that effective price of using Corvin for a bottle of wine? The use of Corvin can determine how many glasses that you get out of it. The key is don't hold the trigger for a long time. The trigger that pushes the argon out Don't hold that for a long time if you want to get a lot of glasses per capsule. So what we say in our marketing literature is on average 15 full glasses per capsule. 
I get 20. My co-founder, Josh, gets 24. And if you use it aggressively, you'll get 10. So using 15 and at Amazon prices, probably the cheapest place you can get Corbin gas is at Amazon. At Amazon prices, you're paying about 50 cents a glass. I'd like to get that down. I'd like to get that down through scale of manufacturing as we start to order in the millions of capsules at a time. And I'd like to get it down through technique. So if you can get to 20 or 24, each glass costs you less. So I tend to do it by the glass as opposed to by the bottle. And the reason is that when you get down to the last glass, pull the cork. The deeper you get into the bottle, the more gas you use to build the same pressure. Online, go to YouTube, how to get the most out of your Corbin capsule. I do a video and some other people have done it. But the key is multiple, very short presses on the trigger until you get the flow rate you like, and then stop pressing and let it sort of slowly drift down in flow speed. And then if you want more, press the trigger once more very quickly again and speed up the flow until you get more and then press once again. It's like driving your car. The faster you drive, the worse your gas mileage. The slower you drive, the more gas you'll get, more glasses you'll get out of every capsule. And as a guide to how successful you were, when you tip the bottle back up when you're done pouring, you want to hear as little sound as possible. If you hear a big that's a lot of wasted gas that could have poured wine. If you hear almost nothing, you've been most efficient. With good technique, you should get 20, and then it's about 40 cents a glass, and we're going to work really hard to get the price of the capsules down. I don't want there to be any hesitation between you and a great glass of wine, and I certainly don't want the cost of gas to be part of that hesitation. I was an early adopter. I still use the Model 1. I'm not sure what Peter uses. But there's a lot of different models. I think Model 11 is the current one. And funny enough, I was actually watching someone in the Finger Lakes go to a restaurant and the restaurant had what looked like what I would call helium tank for filling up balloons, something hooked up to their Corvin. And I was like, wow, that's some mass consumption for that restaurant in the Finger Lakes. But I was curious on the different types of models. And then also, is there any differences between them? And is there specific ones for restaurants or is it all just the main consumer line? Very quickly on the big gas tank, we can't do that. And I've seen it done. The reason we can't do it is that the one downside of argon is that it is heavier than air. And so if you have a closed room and the tank is leaking, and there's enough gas to fill up the room, you drown. And so as a company, we can't do that. A restaurant can take that risk if they want to. We can't. So differences. We've evolved the system over time. And there's always two things that we're trying to achieve with our evolution. One of them is increased ease of use. And the other one is greater accessibility at a lower price point. Our least expensive model is one I'm holding in my hand right now. It's the brand new Model 3. Model 3 is $199, and you can sometimes see it for less. $199 is sort of our entry price right now. That's the latest that we brought in. It has all the functionality of the other models. It's just that you got to like gray, and you got to like its look. But the same needle, same gas. It just looks in a very particular way, and if you like that look, it's great for you. It's the Ford Model T Corvette. Yeah. You can get anywhere in a Ford Model T, right? (laughs) Mercedes has different classes, right? They use the same air in their tires. So the other models are the the Model 5 and 6 in their color and finish and material. And that's it. And I think, you know, some people like bright red and they like to use bright red in a restaurant so people see it. Some people like to match colors with their kitchens. And some of our retailers like to have a color that's unique to them. And so the Model 6 gives us that ability to sort of differentiate by color. And as an engineer and physicist, I don't think that way. As a utilitarian, I buy the Model 3. (laughs) It does everything I need it to do. The Model 11 is different. It's really helped us. We actually launched the Model 11 before the current series. 
And it had two major innovations. One of them was the way that it clamped onto the bottle. There used to be like a hand clamp, like a clothespin. You had to squeeze it, put it on the bottle, push the needle through, and then you would finish pouring. You had to remember that you had to take the needle out before you took the clamp off. We had people that didn't, and they were breaking the needle. So we wanted to remove a step, and we introduced something called smart clamps on Model 11, and it automatically clamps the bottle. You just take it, you slam it down on the bottle, it clamps itself, pull it off, it unlocks itself. We've now put smart clamps across the entire range. So Model 3, Model 6, all have that innovation, and it's been a big positive change for us. Fewer steps, less to learn. The other big innovation of Model 11 was automatic pour. This is something I thought of even when I wrote my first patent, and that was... I found the company, I said, we should be faster, easier, more fun than opening a bottle, independent of closure, still or sparkling. Faster, easier, more fun, to me, meant it pours itself. So with Model 11, you take it, you press down onto the bottle, you tip the bottle sideways, it pours itself. Tip back up, it stops pouring. And on your phone, you can set how many glasses you want to get per capsule. It'll determine the pour speed, which roughly equates to volume. So that's another direction we want to go. I would love to be able to have a measured pour. Model 11 gets very close pretty dang consistent when you set it to a particular glasses per capsule. And it also has a taste mode, so you can do just a taste of wine. And you can set a taste anywhere from almost nothing up to a glass, and you can set a glass pour from half a glass all the way up to half a bottle. So we had some restaurants that were serving, I thought it was a very innovative way of serving wine. Their entire wine list was by the half bottle or the full bottle. And they had a price by the half bottle or the full bottle. They sold exclusively out of 750s. And what they basically said was, We'll pour the first half of the bottle with a Coravin into a decanter, leave the bottle on the table closed with the decanter with a half bottle in it. And then for the second person who orders the wine, we pull the cork, pour it into the decanter, and leave the bottle on the table. It's super cool when you see the entire list, 100 positions by the half bottle and the full bottle, white, red. And I've eaten at that restaurant a couple of times, and I would always have a half bottle of white and a half bottle of red, right, with somebody else. It was perfect. That sounds pretty cool. Some of the pack I bought, I think, was either the two or three. I'm not an early adopter like Robert. I'm more of a fast follower. But I bought one with a needle pack with three different needles in it. But I've never used anything outside of the original needle. And it took me a while to even figure out which needle was which. Again, But what are the differences between the different needles? Yeah, so we have three different needle sizes. And two of them were actually during my development. The first is the vintage needle. And I think it was Caroline Frey who, after we launched the product, sent me a picture. She said, hey, Greg, is this the oldest bottle Coravin? It was a 1909 La Lagune. And I was like, huh, I tested back to the 60s. <laughs> but wow, people are going to use this on some old stuff. I used it on a bottle from the mid-19th century. And so as corks get older, they're less elastic. We rely on the elasticity of the cork to reseal also, some of the corks are kind of loose in their neck and might slide down into the bottle if you corvin it. We wanted to make a needle that could go through old cork and give you a good solid chance of resealing. So we made the vintage needle. You can literally press it through the cork with one finger. It pours more slowly, but the wine took a long time to get to you, so you can wait. The other needle that we made is the fast flow needle, and it is about 30% plus faster than the standard needle that comes with every Coravin. The reason we made that was restaurants. Restaurants wanted to pour as fast as possible. You'll be seeing some innovation from us that's going to fundamentally change pour speed, but they needed the speed in a busy service to be able to use Coravin. And I would use that needle because it is bigger on any wine that was up to 15 years old, but I wouldn't go older than that. Vintage needle, go back into the 19th century. And with standard needle, I feel comfortable as long as the cork's in reasonable shape going back into the 60s. Standard needle is what comes on it. So the three-needle pack has one of each. 
the standard needle has a black hub, the part that you use to thread into the system. The vintage needle has a silver ring on it and the fast flow has a red ring. So they're easy to see the differences. We also have a professional needle that we make rarely that's got a gold rim around it. And it does the same damage as a vintage needle, which is almost nothing, but it's the same size as a standard needle. And we did that by some incredible innovation by our R&D team. I call it porous metal. The end of it has no visible holes, but it's like a sieve. It's unbelievable. I try to get them. We sell out. They're very expensive to manufacture. <laughs> we haven't figured out how to mass produce them where they'd be on everything. They cost a good portion of a Corbin to make, but man, they're awesome. So if we could shift in that direction, it would be great. You'll see them on our website every once in a while. And they're bought up by restaurants. Never even seen that. When you use the Corvin, when do the needles need to be replaced? What we say is 500 to 1,000 uses. So why do they wear out? They're covered in Teflon. Teflon decreases the insertion force by half. And so if you start to notice that the force to insert the needle through the cork goes higher and higher, you're probably wearing out. And you can check your needle just like a frying pan. It turns silver. So take your needle out, take a look at the end. If it's gone silver at the end, you can keep using it. And I've seen people use it until the entire thing is silver, but it takes a lot of arm strength. Buy yourself a new needle, it'll change your life. We've tried different coatings and everyone says that they're better than Teflon and they last longer. And they either last longer and don't reduce the force or they don't work at all. Unfortunately, we're stuck with Teflon. It's a great material. How do you make it last longer? Cut the foil. Corbin goes straight through foil, it goes straight through wax. The metal on the foil scratches the needle. Don't use it on synthetic corks. Synthetic corks strip Teflon and don't use it on them anyway because they don't reseal. And then look out for the Northern Italians. Any sommelier that serves wine from Piemonte will tell you that they use the hardest freaking cork and they compress it like mad as if the wine's going to last forever. Those corks are just hard as rock. And I love them. I'm a huge Nebbiolo fan. And for whatever reason, they just use these rock hard corks. If you're going to use it in Italian, Northern Italian corks, just be prepared. You're going to lose your Teflon faster. And then, of course, avoid Venalock. The glass cork placed under a foil by Austrians like Heinrich, not to call somebody out, who makes fantastic wine, but he puts it under Venalock, under foil. He has broken more needles around the world than anybody else. Unfortunately, I love his wine. So what are you going to do? I've only broken one needle. It was my vintage needle, and it was on an old Dunn. And they use a lot of wax on the Dunhall Mountain. I actually tagged Corvid and I was like, oh, sad to see this one go because it's like an 84 and the wax is just dried out and hard. So I want to ask you about usage. And, you know, when I got the Corvid, I'm suspect of any device gadget. And so I test everything. And so I bought a six pack and ran through, opened a bottle, Corvid a bottle. After that, I had Corvid a, a week or two ago. And then I did for a month and three months. And, and I, eventually I just started writing things on my bottles. After I got past six months, I was like, oh, this is pretty good. I still have some of those bottles, which I'll go back to. But before I would ever do it on a really expensive one, because that was kind of the goal, the promised land of I could sample a first growth or something like that and just have a glass and then see how it evolves in five years. But I've heard from people that aren't believers and haven't done that own personal trial. And maybe that Corvin doesn't work or they see some variations and I'm wondering, what are some of the causes or what are some of the best practices to help avoid that? Or have you heard those kind of anecdotal stories as well? It's a great question. I'm glad you did your testing. You are rare. That's how I developed it. And I got to tell you, I got a whole lot of $10 Spanish and Australian wine from back in the early days because I also wasn't using it on expensive until it worked, right? Until I knew that it worked. So I'll answer in two ways. The one is the practical way. How do you get the best preservation using a Corbin system? And 
we used to say the three C's. I'm now saying four. It's clean, clear, cellar, and cork. So clean, wash it. I have a corkscrew in my jacket over here. I never wash my corkscrew. And people think of Corbin like a corkscrew, and so they never wash it. I've literally been handed one that stuck to my hand by a winemaker in Australia. You got to wash it. And what washing is, is put it under the sink, run hot water through the spout, the place where the wine comes out normally. At the end of any evening, if you've used it, you don't have to do it between wines, but just at the end of the evening, if you've used it, wash it. And why do you do that? Because of things like Britannomyces, Saccharomyces, Acetobacter. These things love warm, dark places with sugar. And wine is sugar. And it's warm and dark inside your Coravin, inside the needle and inside the valve. So if you're a big fan, as I am, of Chateau Mouchard or of some Bordeaux producers or some Southern Rome producers, you're going to get a lot of Brett in there. And injecting Brett into a beautiful Chablis is a tragedy. Don't do that. So if you are feeling guilty because you've never washed your Coravin and you've had it for years, it's okay. Just take some cheap vodka and pour it down the spout first and then wash it from here on out. Just kill those yeast. So that's clean, clear super important. So I have a bottle of red and a bottle of white in front of me and a Swinney wine from Australia, from the Franklin River area. Anyway, if I core in a glass of the red and drink that glass, then I come back an hour and a half later and I want to drink another glass. I've got a little bit of that red sitting in my needle and it's been oxidizing since it's been in there, just from the last pour. And if I were to just go on to the next bottle, let's say the bottle of white, and pour it, the first thing that would go into the bottle would not be argon. It'd be a slug of oxidizing red wine. It doesn't really have a big effect if you do it once, but if you do it twice, or you do it three times to the same bottle, or four times. So the further you get down the bottle, the more time you access it. If you're injecting every time a little slug of the last wine that you drank into the next wine, you will have a big impact on the flavor of that wine. So clear it means give the trigger a quick press just before you go on to the next bottle. And what that does is it fills the valve and needle with argon. You don't have to do it after you poured. You don't have to do it while you're on the bottle. Do it just before you go on to the next bottle of wine that you're about to pour. That's clearing. Super important. And then cellaring. Some people believe that argon's in the bottle and therefore the wine's not going to evolve, so I can just leave it out. Argon does not protect the wine from light strike, from heat, from vibration. If you want the wine to last, put it in a wine refrigerator or put it back in your cellar Keep it cool on its side. Store it like you would store any wine that you were aging. That's really important. So clean, clear, and cellar. The fourth one that we add is cork. If the cork is bad, Corvin isn't going to help it. So I was taught by a master of wine, a really simple trick. He said, wrap your hand around the neck of the bottle, put your thumb on top, and press down. If the cork slides, don't use Corvin. Pull the cork. Drink it tonight because the cork is giving way and is not able to reseal. If the cork is solid, don't worry about it. Use Corvin. And that's true with wines from the 60s, stored wine from the 60s and 50s, a well-stored wine from the 1800s that was buried underneath a chapel in the Czech Republic, and the corks were in great shape. We corvined all, and they reseal. But we can't control for cork and for poor storage. So one of the things I found is that I now always remove the capsule, at least the top of it, because there's so many synthetic corks that even look like cork, and it's a personal pet peeve of those synthetic cork producers. But after I corv in something, I always leave it on my countertop for a, a night. I don't put it right into the cellar and put it on its side. Is that something you recommend as well? You don't need to do it for everything. Sometimes you can see a drop of wine at the top of a cork, and you can think that the cork is leaking or not resealing. And what's actually happening is that the cork closes from the inside out. So the needle leaves the bottom of the cork first, and then it leaves the top of the cork. And sometimes it can drag a bead of wine through that path. 
And so as the cork closes, it squeegees up this droplet of wine that'll come to the surface and you'll see it. That doesn't mean that the cork is leaking. And that's totally okay. However, we have this rule of cold and old. A cold cork and an old cork are simply less elastic. So if you keep whites at a very low temperature, it's going to take them longer to close. And so my recommendation is with colder and older wines, and you can do it with everyone if you like, leave it standing up for five minutes before you put it back in your cellar. And if it's a really old wine, maybe leave it up for an hour and then put it back in your cellar. One thing I wanted to address if I can, the number one reason why somebody believes Coravin doesn't work to preserve the wine has nothing to do with the Coravin and has to do with what's between your ears. Brain is an incredibly powerful instrument and it can convince you that the wine has changed. Over the last 400 years that wine has been in a bottle finished with a cork, the only way that a bottle wound up half full without the cork being removed is through ullage, right? A bad cork, loss of wine and the ingress of oxygen. And so I found that the more somebody is trained in wine, the more they know about wine, the more they absolutely believe they can tell the difference between a Coravin bottle and a non-Coravin bottle. And I even had a master of wine say to me, Greg, it works on reds, but it doesn't work on whites. And I asked that master of wine, do you still have the whites? Oh, yes, I do. Do you have control bottles of the whites that were untouched? Oh, yes, I do. Okay, I'll meet you tomorrow. And we met in New York and we went to Chelsea Wine Vault and they blind tasted us, poured us five glasses of wine. We didn't know which glass or glasses were from the bottle that this master of wine had previously Coravin, which was from the open bottle. And that master of wine spent 45 minutes trying to identify which of the glasses were Coravin. And I knew already, I mean, if you're going to spend 45 minutes and it's not immediately obvious, that means you don't know. And so this is why what you did was so important. When you do the blind tasting yourself, you're convinced and you know. If you don't do it, you make these assumptions that the wine has changed. And it's one of the biggest challenges that Corvin has is how do you break that assumption? And so what we have done is we've replicated that blind tasting experience with the winemakers in Burgundy, in Napa, in Rioja, in Piemonte, in Barossa Valley, in Margaret River, in Austria. We've gone with the top sommelier in Paris, in London, in New York, in Madrid, in Rome, Sydney, and Perth, and Melbourne, thousands of professionals around the world, wines they coravined, and then we come back six months, one year, two years. We've even done a four-year blind tasting, and they can't tell the difference. We've just tried to mass replicate your experience at home with the professionals to try to let them experience themselves that it really doesn't change. Does like a diamond cork or a combination cork versus a natural cork, does that really make a big difference? No. Some people believe that DM corks didn't work as well. DM actually did their own testing and showed that with Coravin it worked. And then I did a ton of testing without knowing it with DM corks. I actually think they're extremely consistent. You know, always know what you're going to get with a DM cork. And so if it works on one of them, it's going to work on all of them, which is great news. And they have the different qualities, the five-year, 10-year, the infinite. I've tested across the range. They are a little harder. And I do find that they strip Teflon faster but I'd almost pay that for the consistency that they provide. So I'm a fan of technical courts. I think they've come a long way. And I'm a fan of the work that's been done to remove TCA and to filter away TCA courts across the industry. Cork is a beautiful natural material, and it's still part of the fun and romance of wine. And I've been to the cork forests in Portugal. They're beautiful, right? I mean, it's this incredibly symbiotic relationship where like sheep, we shear them every nine years. 
it's beautiful from beginning to end. And then you get this wonderful thing that you can save, right? <laughs> if you're a cork collector like I am. I'm a fan of the cork and a screw cap is great too. And we've developed Corvin screw cap, which opened up wines like Swinney, wines like my favorites from Margaret River, Vast Felix and Mosswood and Cullen. There are just certain wines that are under screw cap, and I wanted to make sure that we had the freedom to drink those in the same way we drank under cork. So I think that's a big innovation. And I love the innovations that are coming in wine packaging, You know, some of which Corbin will be able to work with, some of which not, but can of sparkling wine makes a lot of sense. So since you brought up the screw top closure, because you're twisting that off and putting that on there, it's not going to give you the same life expectancy that you would get of a bottle with a cork in it as you're going to get with a screw top cover on top of it. What is that life expectancy? Like how long can you be using that covering? One of the things that we found was, this is sort of surprising to me, that if you open a bottle, don't pour anything, and then close it very quickly, almost no air gets in. The gas in the headspace above the wine is full of heavy hydrocarbons and alcohols that are evaporating into the upper surface and with the gas that the wine producer used to sparge the bottle before they bottle it. And many of the times that's argon. It's either nitrogen or argon or CO2. And so all these things are pretty heavy. I was pleasantly surprised that you could open a bottle and close it as long as you didn't pour anything and access it and the wine would still be okay. So with our Corvin screw cap, we used to say, and we are still saying, but that's only because we haven't changed our marketing literature, that the wine would last three months. Now, we actually know it's better than that. And I've done blind tastings with winemakers in Australia, their own wines. They corvin them out 10 months and they couldn't tell. And I've got some wine in the fridges right over near me that are out 18 months. So how long? You know, I'd say very consistently about a year under the Corvin screw cap. But I do have a trick for you if you don't tell anyone and it wrecks the sales of Corvin screw cap. It turns out you really only need one if you want to go for long-term storage, because the gas that we put into the bottle is heavier than oxygen, argon, you can actually take the Corbin screw cap off and put the original screw cap that came with the bottle back on. And then you can preserve that wine for years. I've gone out four or five years with a screw cap wine. And then every time you pour a glass, just crack it open, put the Corbin screw cap back on and pour through that. So if you leave the Corbin screw cap on at least 10 months, I'm going out to a year very consistently. If you take the Corbin screw cap back off and you want to go longer term storage, say, for example, that wine's really not ready yet and you want to drink it again in five years, then my recommendation is take the Corbin screw cap off, put the original one back on, age it like you normally would. So we've talked a lot about how Corvin works and the different applications and how to use it properly. For those people who still haven't heard about Corvin, how do people normally hear about Corvin? We actually know the answer to that. We've done surveys to find out. And number one place is in wineries, interestingly. And it's either number one or number two. There used to be an enormous amount of tourism to the wineries here in the United States, to Napa Valley, Oregon, Washington, New York, to Burgundy, to Bordeaux, Piemonte. So we're used by winemakers around the world to pour library wines to their customers when they come in. So that was a very common place for people to see it. Number two is the restaurant and wine bar. We are used by everybody from simple cafes in Paris to the top Michelin-starred restaurants in New York and London and Hong Kong to serve fine wines by the glass. And we are lucky that many of them either do a table side or write wines by the glass by Corum. And people ask, what is that? And then the third place is in a friend's home. Just like when friends used to come over to my house and see me using the original wine mosquito, which became the Coravin, they would say, hey, what's that? What are you doing? How do I get that? That, interestingly, in the United States is becoming the number one way people find out. 
it started with wineries, then it went to restaurants and it was word of mouth. Then restaurants sort of overtook wineries and now seeing it in somebody else's house is overtaking restaurants. And particularly with the pandemic, that's true. So word of mouth is the best way, I think, in the end, because you're able to explain to somebody why it's important to you, how you use it, how it's relevant. I got to ask, just because you brought it up, tell me you trademarked wine mosquito. <laughs> I did. And I had winemosquito.com on this time. And my brother-in-law made a joke website because we weren't saying what it was. Yes. And, you know, the original investors invested in wine mosquito. And then we were like, you know, mosquitoes, they are annoying. They cause you to itch and they kill people. So we've got to change names. It was a knockdown drag out fight because a lot of people really loved wine mosquito. My older son, Cord, came up with a name. He was three years old at the time and it just stuck, right? So Coravin came from sort of my Latin geekiness. I was president or vice president. I can't remember what my role was, but I was in the California Latin club, proudly, in high school. And so core is the Latin root for heart. Vine is wine. So for me, getting at the heart of wine, which is variety, 140,000 plus different bottlings of wine every year. They change every year they're in the bottle. You know, you'll never taste every wine and you'll never see what it tastes like over all the vintages that it exists. And I think that's the beauty of wine is it's infinite Rubik's Cube-like variability. The other variable is you and who you bring to that glass on that day is different from last week and is different from last year. And I think your mind changes as time goes on and a wine that would have struck you one way when you're young is different when you're older. It's that variety that I wanted to unlock with Coravin with greater ease and speed and freedom. So I'm curious, going back to the business side, is it mostly sold directly or through distribution? And obviously, how is that different from trade versus consumers? Like, how would you break down your market segmentation? I'll break it up into region and segmentation. So we're in 60 plus countries now. Our sales structure is pretty radically different across the world. And what happens in any new country when we launch, we start off with almost exclusively trade. So wineries, if they produce wine and restaurants and wine bars and wine stores so that they can sample their guests or serve great wines by the glass. And then over time, the consumer sees it in those places and we make it more broadly available through online as well as through retail. And then slowly the consumer overtakes trade just because there's more consumers. A restaurant needs three. They serve hundreds of guests. Those hundreds of guests are also our target market. And there's just lots more of them than there are restaurants. And we are in the weird position where our system in the same design has utility across all segments, from the consumer all the way through to the winery, to the distributor, to the restaurant. So that's the progression that we see. And so we launched the United States first. We're about 80 to 90% consumer in the US, and the rest is trade. Whereas in China, our most recent country, we were until just recently predominantly trade. And then there's the culture of that country. Australians adopt something immediately. California, new technology, great. Australians, same thing. Great. France, not so much. And the Italians, trade, great. We'll adopt it right away. Some of the wineries, great. Other wineries, not so much. One of the beautiful things about Coravin is what it's taught me about all of these different countries. The other thing is channel. China is digital. I don't think I've seen Chinese currency. They don't buy stuff with money or credit cards. They buy stuff with their phones. And people are trading money between each other using QR codes. So I don't think we're in a single retail location in China. We're available on Tmall and JD.com. So I don't know that we've made a sale out of a store. And then, you know, you go to other places that are much less online than the US, like Germany. 
or Italy. You know, the online wine trade is tiny in Italy. And the online sales were tiny on Italy. And then the United States were a lot of online. And then pandemic hit. So now everything has changed. So we are about 75% online in the US now, one way or the other, direct from Corbin.com through Amazon, who's a powerhouse globally, or through Williamsonoma.com or bedbath.com. Or I don't want to leave out a customer of ours, but they're selling online. And some of those brick and mortar retailers now sell more Corvin online than they ever sold in store. I believe that shift is permanent. COVID has forcibly changed things during this pandemic period. We're going to get over it because we're amazing in science nowadays. And you know, I'm here in Massachusetts where one of the vaccines is being made. We're going to cure this thing. Is everything going to go back? No. I placed my first online order for groceries because of the pandemic. I now only buy online. I probably won't go back. I buy all my wine online, except for one small wine store downstairs that I love. I think there are behaviors. We cook better at home now, all of us. Corbin sales have skyrocketed during pandemic. Even though we lost restaurants and we lost brick and mortar retail globally, home consumption of wine has gone up 17% in the United States, right? And people are trying to replicate their restaurant experience at home, learning how to cook, watching Instagram lives with chef, seeing winemakers that they love who would never have gone online now, Burgundian using a computer. <laughs> now they're everywhere. The Italians. I think it's created this enrichment of home life. And Corvin has been part of that, making a wine by the glass program in the house. So I think our business has changed fundamentally. We've gone digital and we need to engage digitally and engage with this change in behavior globally. And so what do you think is the future of Corvin then going forward? Well, there's going to be technology and there's going to be communication and then there's going to be the way that we sell. So technology, when I found the company, faster, easier, more fun than opening a bottle, independent of closure, still or sparkling. That is still our mission. So haven't solved sparkling yet, but we will. And imagine having a different sparkling wine every day you come home and doing a vertical of a vintage champagne on a Tuesday. Imagine doing a horizontal of a particular town or producer to do that with sparkling. Sparkling goes bad in two ways. It goes flat and it oxidizes. So if we can solve that, we could change it when restaurants come back. They could serve 90 champagnes by the glass. I'm going to that restaurant. Sparkling wine. I need everyone's. I'll be there. And to do it at home. Celebrate every day. And then I still think that there is an opportunity for us. I will measure our success by the percentage of wine that is consumed that is poured through a Corbin system. So right now we're used on high-end wines in, in restaurants and wine bars. Um, and I think in part that's because we're not fast enough for the high-speed wines. And there's no reason to waste any wine in my view, right? Inexpensive or expensive, as long as it makes economic sense to preserve it. You see all those vacuum things in restaurants and stoppers or whatever on the, I want to replace all of those and do it with something that's better. And so I would love you to be able to pour a glass in a couple seconds and preserve it for months. So you talked about the vacuums and those types of technologies. Who do you see as real competitors to Corvin? I don't consider the Enomatic and Napotex competitors. I think they're different. They're architecture. A restaurant that commits to an Enomatic or a Napa technology is committing to a look and committing to a particular style of service of wine. And I think that that continues. And I've seen those machines used in combination with Cora. So I think the wall-mounted machines with the individual wine cases, those aren't really a home competitor. They don't cross category and they're used for particular restaurants. So I don't think those. So I think Coravin's competitors are anything that fit in your hand and that you can use on multiple bottles. 
that's a very small category, but it's been filled with things that frankly are inexpensive and frankly don't work. There was just a master of wine who published his, his thesis, his research paper, he's an Australian, testing all the different handheld wine preservation systems. He showed that Corvin was the only one that worked. The trace of all the chemicals over time and the tasting was statistically indistinguishable from a closed bottle of wine. And all the other ones didn't work. And some of them were exactly as an open bottle of wine. I want Corvin to be known as the best way of serving from multiple bottles of wine and not having to think about when you're going to serve from them again. And guarantee that the last glass is as good as the first for as long as we tell you it's going to be, that we have the science to back it up. And what we mean is you're not going to be able to blind taste the difference. And I want that to be true with sparkling and still and different closures, any closure. And then, you know, there's some potential use in the future. I mean, it's interesting. I've now done the test. There are whiskeys that change. There's tequilas that change over time. We are a way of pouring wine or a fluid beverage in a bottle with a neck without oxygen intermingling. Why not get the best out of whatever bottle you've opened? Sake, fine sake. Luckily, most of them use screw cap. So our screw cap works with them in Japan, but the best of the best of them don't. They use this weird stopper that has a plastic stopper with a gold foil, right? And $300 bottle of sake. They should be able to pour that independent of closure. So that's the technology side of Coravin. And you'll see some things very soon, right? Pandemic land has been a great opportunity for our team, which is amazing, to invent, develop. Communication, you're going to see us more digitally. We're going to be connecting appropriately with the emotions around wine and the times you drink it at home as opposed to the very technical that we have been. We realize that that's what wine's about, being happy and enjoying time with friends and sharing. And then I think the way that we sell and what we sell, you'll see that expand on our websites as we see a lot of consumers are coming to us during the pandemic and trusting us to sell to them. We need to build sort of a community of people who love wine are interested in certain things. And if you think about who our friends are, they're the top wineries in the world. They're the top restaurants in the world. They're the top consumers in the world. So how do we connect all those guys to enrich the experience? And we do a little bit of that through our Corvin Moments app, but I think we're going to do more of that. And we have friends in the wine industry and glassware. We're friends with the Riedels. We're friends with the Zaltos of the world. How do we enrich this whole wonderful wine drinking community and the people that both specifically are in wine, but the people that do stuff around wine with Coravin. So there's a lot of innovation possible there. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the future is very bright and I'm very much looking forward to a sparkling stopper or a sparkling needle or whatever that becomes at some point. I think that would be amazing because I am a true champagne fan as well. So for every guest that we have on our episode, we ask them a parting piece of advice. And what do you think is a lasting trend, and a fizzling fad in the wine preservation space? Oh, lasting trend in preservation is going to be serving size, whether it's from a Magnum 750 or 375 served by Coravin or not, being able to get to the right serving for the moment and customizing that. So I think cans are here to stay. They make a lot of sense. And there's some good wine in a can, sparkling and still. And if you consider that a serving size as opposed to preservation, so I, I don't like to think of Corvin is a preservation system, but more of an access system. It allows you to access the wine you want, the quantity you want, when you want, right? The preservation system is the cork that stays in place, right? So we're more of an access to the quantity you want. And I think you'll see that more and more as an innovation space, cake wine, that kind of thing. That makes sense. Bad in wine preservation. You know, it's remarkable how successful things that don't work do or are. Not to knock the vacuum on guys, but that thing really doesn't work. 
<laughs> it doesn't preserve the wine. I don't know that there's a fad that won't last, that gadgets hang out. You know, I would have originally said that it was aeration. Aerators were, gonna, were a fad that were going to go away. But then we made our aerator, and it really does change the experience of wine. And I, I actually use our aerator on some wines, and I don't use it on others. And I pour tastes with and without, and I like one better than the other. Aeration really works. So I think that's going to stay. That's on the preservation. I don't think I see a fad right now on the wine side. It's distribution. That needs to get shattered. The three-tiered alcohol control system is insane. I hope that's a fad. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a fad with a lot of money behind it, right? <laughs> so it was originally constructed at the end of Prohibition to prevent alcohol and control. Well, good luck with that. It hasn't worked. They're still alcoholics, but still a problem. If you want to address that, wine in moderation is the way to go. So there are other ways to try to help that. It is just a cabal of control done by states for tax money and distributors. Right? And I like some of the distributors because they know their wine and they, they serve a purpose, but it doesn't need to be a lock. I think that you're going to see a shift to online. And with what Amazon is doing, look out. I think the reason they bought Whole Foods <laughs> is that gave them the ability to sell alcohol in most states. So look out. They're an amazingly competent company. And then they'll get responded to by competitors who also have multiple locations, Total Wine and Spirits, right? Distributed inventory. It's, I think, digital is the way to go. And we all got it with COVID. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, the world has changed. Those are definitely some interesting insights. And I, I for one, hope the three-tier system goes away. It is antiquated to say the least, but we better not have a distributor on our show then. <laughs> There's a whole separate conversation. I don't want to get into trouble, but Greg, I want to thank you. This has been a truly insightful episode. I learned a lot about Corvid and I appreciate your transparency in talking through all of these different aspects and I appreciate your time. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for letting me mouth off and brain dump. I've been working all day. And so this is a great way to relax. I look forward to the day that we get to sit next to each other and share a glass of wine and relax together. It's sort of what wine does. Burgundy producer said, wine is the most social beverage. I think during these pandemic times, we probably need it more than any other. I look forward to sharing one of these bottles with you guys when we can. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Take care, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.